You're listening to Plenary Session. I'm going to be talking today about medical reversals, and I'm going to make the audacious claim that perhaps 40% of what we do as healthcare professionals may be wrong, i.e. does not improve health outcomes in the patients in whom we deploy it, or actually makes things worse off. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Thank you so much for having me. Disclosure. It's always important to make one's disclosures known, and my disclosures are right up here. So on slide two, I'm the author of the book, Ending Medical Reversal. It's published by Johns Hopkins University Press, and that's why I'm very rich. I have research funding through the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. They fund the work we're doing on reversal. And I'm the host of a podcast called Plenary Session, which is available on the iTunes store. We have many, many five-star reviews, but we have one one one-star review, and I want to know who's responsible. So if anyone finds that out, you let me know. Slide three. But the real disclosure of this talk is that much of what I tell you is controversial. It's not my purpose in giving this lecture to disparage or pick on specific medical practices, but I will do so. But my purpose is to illustrate something broader. I'm here to talk to you about broad patterns of medical progress, about biomedical innovation, where it happens, how evidence for clinical practice is generated, how it's increasingly being hijacked, and some famous missteps in medicine. So I hope to cover all this. Slide four. What is medical reversal? I think so often people within medicine, doctors, healthcare providers, um, but also people on the outside of medicine, we tend to have a sort of mental framework for how medical progress has occurred. And that is shown nicely in in this picture. This is a picture of two automobiles. On the left is Henry Ford's Model T. On the right is Elon Musk's Model S. I think when we think about healthcare, we extrapolate our experience with technology, for instance, televisions, with cellular phones, with automobiles, to biomedicine. And we think that just as there has been steady incremental advancement in these technologies over the last 20, 30, 40, 100 years, there has been steady incremental advancement in medicine. And what I wish to suggest is that this narrative that that we keep getting slightly better year after year, that this is in part true. There are examples in biomedicine that fit this narrative, where the narrative really does hold. I'll just give you a couple examples. Histamine antagonists, PPIs. Um, It wasn't that long ago when a patient who suffered from a peptic ulcer, uh, a sclerotic lesion of the stomach, that patient was treated with a surgical procedure, which is now considered barbaric. 
uh, enter drugs that could block histamine, uh, which is involved in acid secretion, and finally the proton pump inhibitor, which literally pumps the, the acidified environment into the stomach. When we were able to block that, we were able to treat peptic ulcers. So what was once a surgical condition is now medically managed routinely. The other example I'll give you is how we treat something called ST elevation myocardial infarction, or a really severe heart attack. This is a heart attack that's so bad um, that the artery that supplies the heart is totally blocked with some plaque rupture that the entire wall of the heart has no oxygen, no blood flow supply, and it is not beating correctly, and that's called an ST elevation MI. Um, it wasn't that long ago when the treatment in Western medicine for an ST elevation MI was bed rest, and doctors really didn't know that this was due to an acute blockage of a coronary artery. In the 1980s and 1990s, we pioneered drugs like streptokinase and tissue plasminogen activator, which were able to open up this clogged artery, although very nonspecifically, mostly by uh, increasing the body's propensity to break up clot, which of course has the risk of bleeding. Finally, we were able to perform interventional procedures where a guide wire is inserted across the lesion and the plaque is expanded outward with a, initially just a balloon and then an expandable metal stent, and that's called percutaneous coronary angioplasty or stenting. Stenting for an ST elevation MI is an absolutely life-saving intervention, maybe something on the order of 10 to 20 people per 100 people um, who have this condition, has their life saved as a result of this intervention. That's sort of the absolute risk reduction or the number needed to treat um, is about five. Uh, it's probably one of the best things we do in all of biomedicine. Uh, it is a very important procedure that clearly improves outcomes. There's no doubt about that. Okay, why do I tell these examples? Because these fit the examples of the automobiles. This is steady incremental advancement. This is Henry Ford being improved upon very, very slowly until we have Elon Musk's Model S. Um, this is what many of us conceptualize biomedicine. We look at our cell phones, which were once, you know, big enough you had to carry in a briefcase, now small enough they can slip into your pocket and are more powerful than a computer from the 1990s. Um, we extrapolate our experience um, to medicine, but to some degree that extrapolation is fair. It has happened in certain fields, but it's incomplete. You know, medical textbooks are too often written from the point of view of the victors. History is written by the victors, they like to say. That's certainly true for medical textbooks. The textbooks tell the narrative of biomedicine as if everything that's happened up until this point was that slow, steady, incremental advancement. And what gets left out of the textbooks, largely because of space, are the unsung narratives. The times in medicine, the many other times, where something we had been doing is found to be no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care, including doing nothing. This is medical reversal. The things that we extol, that we promulgated, that we pushed, that we thought would benefit our patients, that turned out not to do that. These are the stories that don't get written in the books because there's only so many pages in the books and that, that page space is best spent explaining why you do what you do today and not telling us about the missteps from the 1960s or 70s or 80s, for instance. I'll give you two examples. One, hormone therapy for postmenopausal women. Uh, in the 1990s, driven by a study that came out of Harvard and a lot of biological evidence 
that hormone supplementation for women who've passed through menopause could lower the rate of cardiovascular events. This was widely prescribed. Um, the epidemiology study was a nurse's health study. It showed that women who continued to take hormone replacement after menopause had lower cardiovascular event rates than women who did not take that. Um, and that was a classic paper that was in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the biology shows that estrogen has a favorable effects on the vascular endothelium. And there was a company involved, Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, which was making a tremendous amount of money from PremPro. And combine these forces together, retrospective observational studies that suggest benefit, um, basic science that gives you a plausible mechanism, and a company that can make a lot of money, and you get widespread enthusiasm for the supplementation. And of course, by 2002 and 2003, we had subjected this intervention to the test. And that test was the randomized control trial, where women post-menopause were randomly allocated to this intervention or not. And it was found that it actually increased the rate of cardiovascular events, and it was halted for futility. There are some people who say, well, this trial didn't disprove postmenopausal supplementation in all its forms. It's okay to give a short course of this medication if a woman has a lot of hot flashes and then taper it off a few months later or a year later when that ends. And I want to say, you know, I don't discount that. Is it possible that there's still a small role for hormone therapy? Sure, absolutely. But is that what we were doing? Absolutely not. We were prescribing large-scale, widespread, many years post-menopause hormone supplementations with the idea that it would lower cardiovascular event rates, and it absolutely, for that population, does not. So what we did was a medical reversal. We were practicing something that was resoundingly contradicted. And the people who want to resurrect hormone therapy for a very, very small use, um, that's fine if they want to do that and develop the credible evidence to support that. But that doesn't change the fact that that was not what we were doing. We weren't prescribing it just for this very narrow niche indication. We're prescribing it rather broadly. The other example, stenting. I talked to you about stenting and how it represents the automobile steady incremental advancement. But I didn't tell you the other story about stenting, which, like so many medical interventions, something that works very well in a severe disease state, an acute obstruction of the coronary artery, doesn't work that well in a milder disease state. And at some point, the harms may outweigh the benefits. In this country, the United States, we routinely performed stenting for chronic stable angina. Stable angina is a narrowing of the coronary artery that leads to the symptom of chest tightness when you exert yourself that gets better when you rest. It comes on reproducibly. In other words, at the same sort of level of exertion, it comes on, and with the same amount of rest, it gets better. Um, it's not accelerating. It's chronic. It's been there a long time. It's stable. This is one of the reasons why people in this country had stents placed, and some estimate that it actually accounted for the majority of stents placed in this country. Now, why would you have this procedure? Well, maybe placing a stent in this early disease state would improve your survival. Maybe it would lower the rate of a heart attack, and maybe it'll make you feel better. All of these maybes have been tested in rigorous randomized control trials many decades after this procedure has been performed. So the first trial in 2007, the COURAGE study, that shows resoundingly that stenting chronic stable angina does not improve mortality, and it does not lower the rate of subsequent myocardial infarction. Yet despite the fact that this has been known since 2007, survey after survey of patients undergoing the procedure suggest that the majority of them, 85% by some surveys, 
believe that this intervention accomplishes both those goals. So at a minimum, we have a patient consent problem in this field. People do not know why they're getting this done. They believe it does something which it clearly does not. Next, what about making you feel better? Well, many believed that even though it doesn't decrease the rate of heart attack or it doesn't make you live longer, at least it'll lower that chest tightness and that's a good thing. And if it did that, that absolutely would be a good thing. But we're going to circle back to that in just a minute. So what is medical reversal? It's a lot more like this automobile. This is the Volkswagen diesel. People purchase this automobile, including some people I know who may someday listen to this and hear me joking about this. Uh, people I know um, who purchased this automobile did so because they wanted to put less greenhouse gases in the environment. They cared about climate change. Um, and yet, this vehicle put out 30 times as many greenhouse gases as had you just bought a gas-guzzling vehicle. So in other words, it was a misstep. It was worse than the thing it sought to replace. And medical reversal is a lot more like the Volkswagen diesel. And in fact, in biomedicine, unlike in the automobile industry, we are riddled with Volkswagen diesels. We have diesels all the time. And throughout this talk, by the end of this talk, I hope you will have some understanding why medicine, rather than engineering, is more prone to this sort of phenomenon and why our current culture around biomedical innovation makes us particularly susceptible to reversal. Okay, so in the brief time I have with you today, and I hope to, to do this in, you know, about 45 minutes or so, I want to talk to you, give you some examples of reversal. I want to show you some empirical data that we've generated in, insofar as how frequent it happens. Is reversal rare but memorable, like an earthquake in California? Or is it like a snowstorm in a Chicago winter, something that happens just all the time? Now, why is it harmful? Where does it come from? What can we do about it? What are some persistent objections I hear? And what will evidence-based medicine look like going forward in, in the age of recognition of reversal? What does the future hold? Let's start with some examples. A few years ago, there was an outbreak of fungal meningitis in the Northeast, and this was implicated to a compounding pharmacy. That's a pharmacy where they purchased methylprednisolone and they mixed it up into syringes for the administration in the epidural space, which is right around the brain and spinal cords. And one of the things they noted in this compounding pharmacy that it didn't meet very clean standards for processing and thus it got contaminated with aspergillus, this fungus. And if many people got sick and a couple of people died. And my understanding was about a year and a half ago or two years ago, the CEO of that compounding pharmacy actually was indicted and went to federal prison. So this was a problem that we got methylprednisolone dirty and that methylprednisolone was a steroid that people injected in the space around the brain and spinal cords. Um, for people with painful spinal stenosis, which is a narrowing of the spinal canal that impinges on the nerve. And the idea is that the steroid would go there and soothe the nerve and lower the pain. And that steroid got contaminated and, you know, bad things happened. And when people saw this, they talked a lot about how can we allow compounding pharmacies to not meet very high levels of cleanliness? That's the problem. When I heard about that, I thought that that was a problem, absolutely. But I thought there was an additional problem. Why are we injecting so many people with steroids? And the reason we're doing that is we believe that painful spinal stenosis is made better with the administration of corticosteroids, that this is a long-acting, you know, long half-life, many-week half-life anti-inflammatory, and it goes there and it soothes those 
you know, compressed uh, nerves. And yet, that hypothesis has been empirically tested in a sham controlled study. And that's what you're seeing right here on slide nine. This is the result of a sham controlled study that randomizes patients to lidocaine with or without a glucocorticoid. In one arm, it's lidocaine with normal saline. In the other arm, it's lidocaine with the steroid. Now, lidocaine is a numbing medicine that, you know, you've been exposed to something similar. If you've gone to the dentist, it's very short acting. By one day, two days, it's totally worn off. The glucocorticoid is the long-acting anti-inflammatory, and it's supposed to be exerting a benefit at three weeks and six weeks. And that's what every measure here shows you. This is the three-week and six-week back pain intensity, um, measures of physical function and symptom scores. And what you expect to see here is that both groups are going to get better in, from the baseline, the beginning. But at three weeks and six weeks, the curve should separate because the group that got the steroid is the only group that has any active anti-inflammatory that exerts an effective three or six weeks. And what you see is that there is no separation at all between these curves by any measure. In other words, that steroid injection for painful spinal stenosis is an invasive, risky, harmful, expensive placebo. It's nothing more than a placebo. The benefit of the steroid is a pure placebo effect. You would have benefited just as much from an injection of normal saline. This is problematic because it means that one of the failings in the compounding pharmacy wasn't just that they couldn't get their act together and keep it clean, but also that we were injecting many people with a placebo and we didn't tell them it was a placebo. Orbita. I talked to you a little bit about chronic stable angina, which, you know, by 2007 and 2008 had been shown definitively not to lower the rate of heart attack and not to improve your longevity. In 2018, in The Lancet, Rasha Alami and Daryl Francis published Orbita. This was the first sham controlled study of stenting chronic stable angina. They randomized patients with angina to the stent or we told you you put a stent in and we performed a procedure, but we didn't actually put the stent in. And the primary endpoint was how much time you could perform on an exercise treadmill test. And I will um, give you a little piece of information. In a trial in the 1990s where we randomized patients to stenting or medical management, but it wasn't sham controlled, so they knew they had the stent placed, the stenting increased exercise time by 90 seconds. In the years since, we've developed a number of anti-anginal drugs, medicines that lower the rate of angina, and they can increase exercise time by about 45 seconds when tested against a placebo pill. In this trial, the authors powered the study to find a difference of 30 seconds, which is beneath an anti-anginal and beneath what cardiologists say is the minimum difference that's considered clinically meaningful. Because in this example, people can exercise for several minutes and this is an intervention that should add a little bit of time on the end. So what's the minimum amount of time you should add before it's meaningful? People say 40, 45 seconds. 30 seconds is so small that it's hard to know if it's meaningful. But that's what the trial was powered for. And that trial failed to show that 30-second difference. They found a numerical difference of 16 seconds with a p-value of 0.2, which did not meet significance. And many people said that this study was underpowered. And Daryl Francis turned to Twitter to point out that if you say my study is underpowered and you don't really understand that I had actually powered it to detect a difference smaller than that thought clinically meaningful. So if you think it's underpowered and you can't tell me what you want to power it for, he said that the only thing underpowered is your brain. And unfortunately, he's not commenting as much on Twitter. But 
I don't know if it had anything to do with this, but um, I thought it was a very astute comment because it's true. It was overpowered to detect the difference that's meaningful. And Orbita really does show that stenting did not improve the primary endpoint of that trial. I think it's problematic for this practice that has continued for many, many years and cost tens of billions of dollars and performed on hundreds of thousands of patients that it doesn't improve survival, doesn't lower the rate of MI, and it may not make them feel better than a sham intervention. That is a problematic medical intervention for something with real complications because every once in a while when you perform this procedure, you dissect someone's coronary artery, which is a life-threatening event. You can easily scrape their aorta and shower atherosclerotic emboli to their toes, which causes um, sort of necrotic blue toes. Um, and there are many other ways in which you can harm someone from obviously putting a guide wire in an artery and running it up to the heart, including inducing an arrhythmia, et cetera, et cetera. So for that risk to be beneficial to the patient, for the, there must be a net benefit from performing this procedure, and clearly in Orbita, there was not. Okay. Those are just some examples, and they both have something in common, which is they are mechanical interventions that seek to improve a subjective endpoint. And both of them looked good when you compared them to medical management, i.e. pills, but both of them fell on their face when you compared them against a sham intervention where patients believed they were undergoing the procedure, but they did not. They, they merely had that sort of simulated experience. And that's key because the sham intervention is what separates the placebo effect because we all know placebo effect is stronger if something is more expensive more invasive and um, and and really kind of upsold more um, than if it is cheaper, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and the only way to know if the active step of the intervention is better than placebo is to perform the sham study, and that is what we saw in both of these trials. And in both, they were null. How often does this happen? This is slide twelve. We performed our own estimate. Um, a paper entitled A Decade of Reversal, an analysis of 146 contradicted medical practices. Um, I want to say at the outset that this is not a be-all, end-all answer to this question. It's, a, it's our attempt. It's, it's our best attempt at the time, and I think it's a good attempt, but it isn't a perfect answer because there is a perfect way to answer this question, which is, and it may even be the solution to this whole dilemma, which is, you know, we live in a country where we spend approximately $1 trillion of federal taxpayer money on health care. You should take some chunk of that money, maybe 5% or 10%, and put that in a, a, a fund and get a bunch of non-conflicted academics to make a list of every single medical practice that we perform that has no credible data one way or the other. And these practices should be ranked by something called value of information. Uh, the, in other words, the most costly, invasive, frequently performed uh, practices for which there is true clinical ambiguity should be high, and the other ones, the cheapest, uh, you know, least invasive uh, ones uh, should be in the bottom. And we should just run randomized trials, putting these to the test. And that would be the perfect way to answer how much of medical practice that doctors currently do that is unproven actually does work. We didn't have that luxury. Um, so we turned to the literature. Here's what we did. Slide 13. Um, we took every original article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in a decade. That was 2,044 articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, original articles in a decade. And these were read in duplicate by two people. And that is why God invented medical students, to do this kind of important work. But I joke, I joke about that. But the truth is that 
if you're a medical student and you're doing a project, this is probably the best project you can do. So many medical students are lured into the laboratories of people and made to do some basic science project using a technique that they've only learned that week, and they're only going to be able to do this for a few months before they have to move on to the next rotation, and thus they don't have that longevity that's so necessary for basic science. And then they move on, and they've just spent, you know, dozens and dozens of hours pipetting, and I'm not sure they've gotten much out of it. In this case, the same student with the same time schedule has spent dozens and dozens of hours reading the most important articles in biomedicine. So that's your consolation prize, and it's, it's not bad. These are articles that you probably should read. Okay, what do we find? The first thing we find is that 1,344 concern a medical practice. These are interventions that doctors believe that these are interventions that healthcare systems did. The rest are biological things, like um, there's a novel mutation that predicts some disease. There's something you'd read in Nature or Science, not necessarily the New England Journal. But 1,300 things were, should you give this pill? Should you wear a gown and glove when you go see a patient? Should you perform the surgery? Should you do X? Should you do Y? The kinds of things doctors do all the time. Here's what we found. Slide 14. We found a thousand of them tested something novel. And if you tested something novel, new blood thinner, um, you know, new cancer medicine, slide 15. 77% of the time found that the practice was beneficial, was better than what we were currently doing, and 17% of the time it was no better or worse, or what we call back to the drawing board. What does this mean? This means something, you know, quite simple. Um, if you want to publish in the New England Journal of Medicine and you're bringing something novel to the table, well, you better change practice because the New England Journal of Medicine doesn't want to read about your failed anti-cancer drug or your failed anticoagulant that is never going to get used and never going to get cited in 10 years. And if we're going to keep our impact factor up around 50, we're going to need game-changing, practice-changing trials. That's the bottom line. And indeed, this is what I think people criticize as publication bias selective reporting bias, which is a broader category, um, you know, they want to keep their impact factor high. And, and that's why you see this, because you should also know there's absolutely, absolutely no way that clinical trials have this success rate. The average success of a clinical trial just run at random is far lower than 77%. Slide 16. We also found that 363 medical practices were something that was established, something that doctors were already doing, and slide 17. And if you tested something established, 38% of the time you found the practice beneficial, but 40% of the time you found the practice no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care, and that's what we call medical reversal. And if you tested something established, we believe that there's probably less of that selection bias because the mere testing of something doctors are doing day in and day out is provocative. It will be cited either to justify the continued use of that or to say we should stop doing this. Um, it, it is justified uh, and it will likely be cited in the future. So they probably don't have that as much. But, you know, nevertheless, that's a limit of this paper. Maybe there's some bias here. But we've now kind of performed this in many journals and you're going to see those results uh, in the near future, not in this slide deck. Um, okay, so the provocative conclusion here is that, you know, Given that so much of biomedicine simply lacks credible data one way or the other, it's medicine that's been passed down over the years from attending to fellow to resident, has never really been critically appraised, our paper would suggest that if you put these things to the task, 
you subjected them to rigorous appraisal. Don't be surprised if, a, if as many as 40% failed. So to that question, are reversals like the earthquake in California rare but memorable? Or is it like a snowstorm in a Chicago winter? I think it's a lot more like a snowstorm in a Chicago winter. Because if you're in Chicago over the winter, it's snowing about 40% of the time. Slide 18. You know, if you want to really understand this phenomenon, if you want the history of biomedicine that's not going to be told to you by a venture capitalist or an investor or in the textbooks, you got to read the supplement of the book or you got to read the supplement of the paper. In that supplement, we detail all 146 reversals. These are the practices that made perfect sense. They were promulgated by experts and all of them in retrospect were found not to work. Slide 19. Um, there is no corner of medicine that was exempt from these. This affected medications, procedures, devices, surgery, screening tests, over-the-counter medications, vitamin supplements, and the list goes on and on. Every corner of healthcare. Finally, quality and performance metrics, I should have mentioned that, and systems interventions. That checklist manifesto that is promoted heavily, you know, it doesn't always work so well in many situations. Okay, next slide, harms. Um, okay, so thus far, I hope to have convinced you that there is this phenomenon where healthcare systems, doctors adopt practices and do it for many, many years because they make perfect sense. They should work, but when tested rigorously, they're found not to work. And in many cases, this is because the underlying evidence prior to the reversal is fragmented, weak, uncontrolled, and people want to believe. Um, we want to believe they work. Um, and we often make a great deal of money from them. So they're adopted quickly. But why is it harmful? Next slide. Slide 21. Um, you know, I think there are three harms to this. Um, it's harmful during the years it fell in favor. There are patients who had stenting for chronic stable angina who were told that this will lower your rate of heart attack. Uh, and in fact, it did no such thing. It's harmful to the people who undergo the practice during the lag time before it falls out of favor. There's sort of 10 years of clinical inertia. And then lastly, there's loss of trust in the medical system. Let me talk about the second one a little bit. So we'll skip slide 22. We'll go to slide 23. This is a paper by John Ioannidis um, called Persistence of Contradicted Claims in the Literature. It was published in JAMA. It shows something very simple. In 1981, there was a seminal paper published in a high-impact journal that showed that in an observational data set that higher levels of beta carotene were associated with lower rates of lung cancer. And that paper was cited quite frequently in the years to come. And that's the solid line, how many times that paper was cited. And the dotted line is how many times the average article published in that same journal in that same year um, was cited. This is the citation decay curve. Okay, so the dotted line is showing you what happens to the average article over time, and this solid line is showing you what happened to this beta-carotene article over time. And what this shows you is this beta-carotene article is cited on average, more than average, um, and for a longer period of time. Now, what you don't see here is that from 1989 to 1991, there were three randomized controlled trials of this provocative claim, and all of them showed that it did not lower the rate of lung cancer, and one of them showed that it increased the rate of lung cancer. So you should expect that this claim, which is contradicted by 91, uh, falls out of favor. And what you find, though, is that it's still highly cited. And John looked through these sites to say, is it cited for people saying that, look, this is an example of how we got it wrong? No. 
It's cited because people are saying beta-carotene remains highly promising. And so this is what he means by the lag time, the time in which these citations continue to happen and the false claim continues to be promulgated even after refuting evidence is known. Slide 24. The last thing I'll talk about is just loss of trust. We live at a very dangerous time, I think, currently. There is widespread distrust of medical science. Um, nowhere is that more evident than in the discussions of vaccines, um, which show um, really a group of people who are you know, fundamentally anti-science um, and distrustful of a mainstay recommendation. Um, and yet, one wonders to what degree is this sudden anti-knowledge, anti-science backlash in part exacerbated by the high rate with which medical science truly does flip-flop. I mean, just take the example of mammography, which I put here on the slide. When we changed our guidelines from annual mammography from 40 to 50, and we did so, the USPSTF by we, I mean, um, did so based on a clear appraisal of the benefits and harms, um, and it had nothing to do with cost, the response in the lay media and the lay community was that this was a cost-saving measure or that people were trying to or willing to allow women to die of breast cancer, which absolutely was not the case. And yet, there was extreme sort of feelings generated on this topic, and I still frequently see people argue, say that, you know, if you don't do a mammogram for women at age 40, uh, you know, you're letting women die. And to those people, I always ask them, why not 39? Why not 38? Why not 37? And they usually have no good answer, because the, the truth is, you have to balance benefits and harms, and you have to make some public policy decisions. And those decisions can only be based on evidence. But when you shift and take away things people have gotten used to, you create a tremendous backlash and people do suspect that there's some ill motive underlying that change. And that's a lot different than if you had sorted it out at the outset and then implemented it correctly. Um, unfortunately, we could have a whole lecture on this, cancer screening is not one of those things. It was implemented long before credible data were known and it is implemented in many cases in the absence of credible data or against the best credible data. All right. Let's talk about slide 25, origins. Where does reversal come from? If you heard the sound of a can, that was the delicious taste of LaCroix. LaCroix, proud sponsor of Plenary Session. No, that's actually not true at all. They're, they're not a sponsor. I wish they were, though, because I do like a good LaCroix. All right, let's talk about origins. Where does this problem really come from? Slide 26. Okay, I apologize in advance. This is my busy slide. And when I listen to people talk, I often hear people say, sorry about my busy slide, and I curse them under my breath. And so I expect you all to be doing the same thing to me right now, and I do apologize. But it's busy for a reason because it really does answer this question. Okay, I want to say two things. One, there are a lot of upstream reasons for why we have reversal. And I don't claim to be the expert on those, and perhaps you need somebody like Danny Kahneman to tell you that, because they probably have to do with psychology. Human beings, doctors, we want to help people. We want to believe what's newer is better. We want to believe that you know we have the power to help people that we're not impotent in the face of illness. Um, we want new things. Okay, that's probably part of it. Two, we many people are making money hand over fist by having low standards for regulatory approval. Uh, the lower the bar 
in terms of proof of efficacy to come to the market, the easier it is to come to the market, the more you can come to market. And if you have a broken system where there are no real price controls, you can make a lot of money. Um, so those probably are like the real sort of root drivers. Um, I joke that, you know, that the most addictive substance on earth to a physician is the combination of doing something that you truly believe is helping your patients and pairing it with a little financial stimulus. Um, that's the methamphetamine of being a doctor. Um, but all of that could be sort of adjudicated. Um, all of that could be dealt with in the single common pathway to the failure, which is that we adopted something based on inadequate or biased studies, as I show on the slide. We we're enthusiastic, but we jumped on it before we had clear evidence without definitive trials ongoing or forthcoming. And why do we adopt medical practices before we have good credible evidence? Well, sometimes it's the pathophysiology alone. Sometimes it just makes a lot of sense. Sometimes it's pathophysiology plus anecdotal evidence. Sometimes it's that kind of epidemiologic evidence like nurses health study and hormone therapy, historical controlled evidence. So many times in cancer medicine, we say, we're going to treat everyone with a certain cancer with drug A. Why do we use drug A? Because 60% of people are alive at two years with drug A. And I know from a published series from MD Anderson from 19 diggity two, that only 42% were alive from drug B, which is the older drug we used to use in this space. So 60% is better than 40%, therefore we use a new drug. That type of comparison is notoriously inflated and notoriously erroneous. Um, and there's a great paper by Sachs and colleagues in the American Journal of Medicine from 1982 that proves that. But yet, that is the mainstay of reasoning in many fields of medicine. Finally, up on the slide, randomized trials. Um, randomized trials, merely being a randomized trial doesn't mean you're a good randomized trial. Randomized trials are a lot like the Boeing 747. You know, it's a reliable aircraft that does its job very well. But unfortunately, what we've done inside the aircraft and to the boarding of the aircraft resembles a lot like what United Airlines has done to the 747, which is made it a miserable experience. And how have we done that? Through inappropriate controls, or I should really say inappropriate patients. We are enrolling patients on trials that are too young and not representative. There's inappropriate dosing of medicines, inappropriate comparator medicines, inappropriate prohibitions on concomitant medications, and there's a single center. So many randomized trials, particularly of social and behavioral and policy interventions that are run at a single center, have led to erroneous conclusions, in part because probably they weren't scalable. They only could be done at that single center with those peculiarities. When we talk about pragmatic trials, what we mean are making these things better, making our population more representative, making the rules about other drugs more like the real world, and making it multi-centered. And that will really answer whether or not these are good policy level recommendations. Finally, um, there are a whole bunch of other things, drug run-in periods and the inappropriate endpoints. We're just obsessed with surrogate endpoints. What's a surrogate endpoint? It's something like your cholesterol level or your sugar level. It's not something that you think matters in and of itself. It only matters because it predicts something that does. Um, what my co-author of my book, Adam Sifu, likes to say is a surrogate endpoint is an endpoint a patient didn't know matter until a doctor told them that it did. Um, finally, there's some other things about randomized trials that I don't think we'll have time for. And I just want to mention meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is a lot like a juicer. Uh, it only tastes as good as what you put in, and people are putting rotten fruits and vegetables in that juicer. Slide 27. 
I think I've made this point before in this talk, but there is a class of endpoints, subjective endpoints. This is dyspnea, difficulty breathing, angina, chest tightness, um, uh, pain. These are things that the patient is telling you they feel, depression. And if you perform a mechanical intervention to improve something that the patient reports to you, the placebo effect is strong and you need the sham intervention. And this is just a list of some things we've seen in biomedicine, meniscectomy, debridement, um, where it took a sham intervention to really know that the, that the intervention didn't work. Okay, um, I am going to slide 28. Uh, skip the next section because this is a section that's an homage to Chirag Patel. Um, and Chirag Patel um, will be able to tell you this at greater depth. But this is about a paper that he did, slide 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, which is his seminal um, figure of the paper, um, that really explains that retrospective observational studies can generate a variety of conclusions based on the covariates that are selected for the model. And I, I know he'll be doing a better job of explaining that than I will in the brief time we have. I just want to talk about one more thing in the time I have. So I'm going to skip slide 36, talk about slide 38. There's one real solution here. New costly technologies that are being introduced into healthcare systems are ideal for testing in randomized controlled trials. Before you have the fancy new toy, that's when it needs to be vetted. Why? Because doctors and patients and the public have proven that they find it very, very difficult to give up something once they've gotten used to it. Once you see what can happen when you stent people with chronic stable angina and you've been reimbursed heavily for it for decades. You tend to discount studies like Orbita, even though there is no better study out there showing that stenting has a benefit. You tend to find reasons why it must be wrong. That doesn't happen when things never come to market. For instance, we don't have wide-scale screening for... Um, ovarian cancer, and you don't see people up in arms when you point out that the randomized data for that is lousy. We did have wide-scale screening for prostate cancer, and you do see people up in arms when you point out that the randomized data for that is equally lousy. And we have a paper on that forthcoming. In other words, once people get used to doing something, they find it very, very difficult to give it up, even in the face of overwhelming contradictory negative evidence. Um, thus, testing things for more certainty at the outset makes sense from a healthcare system. Next slide. We need to prioritize unproven medical practice. I think I alluded to this in this lecture, a value of information, and run a large non-conflicted trials agenda. This is the real solution. Any system where you spend a trillion dollars on something and you know a sizable chunk of that is spent on things that you have absolutely no idea if they accomplish the stated goals, um, that system would benefit from some fraction of those funds being used to subject that to rigorous appraisal, especially when you suspect that perhaps up to 40% of those practices do not deliver value for money, do not deliver any value at all, and thus they could easily be adopted. I sometimes hear people say, we don't have money for fill in the blank running these trials. We don't have money for having data sharing. What I like to say is something that Peter Doshi told me, which is, and he was the author of the reanalysis of Tamiflu, which showed that the commonly prescribed flu medication was probably no better than Tylenol. Um, and what he told me was, you know, people say that you can't afford 
to share data, Tamiflu shows you that one Tamiflu can pay for data sharing for a decade because we could potentially save $20 billion in stockpile costs from, from having done this work at the outset. Similarly, some of these trials will pay for themselves because the intervention is very costly and federal budgets currently sustain it. Slide 49. Sorry, slide 40. Um, we need the design and conduct of clinical trials to move to third-party agencies. It does not make sense that the industry that profits from trials is the same industry that is designing their trials and running them and collecting the data and writing the manuscript and the reporting the results. That's too much control. That would be like if I administered a painting contest for which the prize is $12 billion dollars. Um, because a recent paper suggested that, that that tends to be the average earning of a cancer drug on the market for 14 years, $12 billion, if that's the prize, and, and I, it's a painting contest, and I submit my own painting, well, you, you can guess who's going to win that painting contest, because I can tell you right now, I want $12 billion. And, and, and that regarding that conflict of interest slide, I don't have conflicts from the industry, but, but if they started to come at me with that kind of money, I'm willing to change my tune. All right, slide 41. Um, this is a point about, you know, the analogy I used about randomized trials in the airline. Um, a randomized control trial is a lot like um, the airplane. People criticize randomized trials and they say how miserable it is. And I criticize traveling, and that probably is in part the reason why I'm not with you today, um, because it's a miserable experience. But it's not the fault of the airplane. It's what we've done to it. You don't have to put seats so close. You don't have to keep shrinking headroom. You don't have to have boarding group five and always stick me in it, okay? You can make it a better experience. And similarly, randomized trials don't have to have that bureaucracy. We can streamline them, make them more efficient. This is Mike Lauer and Ralph Diagostino in the New England Journal. And what they show you here is a graph, the blue line, Every patient in the Netherlands who had an ST elevation MI who came to the hospital, the red line, every patient who was randomized to a trial of sucking out the blood clot versus not. This is the TASTE trial. What does it show you? The majority of patients were able to be randomized. And what I've underlined at the bottom is they've done this trial for $50 per participant who underwent randomization. How can this happen? What they did was they built a registry an observational registry, and they built randomization into it. And what they have done is make randomized trials cheap and easy. And they have solved the problem that we're perpetually vexed with in the United States, which is that we can only enroll 5% of our patients on pivotal clinical trials. They're enrolling upwards of 50% because they've made it easy. All right. Slide 42. One of the things I always hear when I talk about the need for randomized trials to sort out what medical practices actually improve outcomes and what don't is this. What about randomized trials of the parachute? This is a paper by Gordon Smith and Jill Pell, two OBGYN doctors, which for those of us in medicine will come as no surprise because they have very few randomized trials in that field. Um, they have written this satirical piece in the BMJ that says, Parachute used to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge, a systematic review of randomized control trials. And what it says is, if you look for a randomized trial for the parachute for jumping out of an airplane, you will find there are no such trials. And we think that everyone would benefit if the most radical protagonist of EBM, evidence-based medicine, and that would probably be the person speaking right now, organized and participated in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachute. It's a humorous piece because, of course, they would all die, and so we'd, we'd finally be rid of EBM experts, which I'm sure would allow the field of 
medicine to innovate at a rate that has never been seen before. And I think that's what the authors are getting at. But, of course, many of, that many of those innovations would be foolish and blind alley innovations, but that wouldn't stop anyone from making money. Um, but the joke here, of course, is that if you have an intervention that is of indisputable and clear benefit, you don't need a randomized trial to sort that out. That's visible to the naked eye, and anyone can see it who is not suffering from some problem. But what they're missing here, slide 43, is the two limits to randomized trials of parachutes. One, when you jump out of an airplane and you fall and then you hit the ground without a parachute and you pass away, there is a single clear etiology. Um, that doesn't exist too often in biomedicine. That doesn't exist for heart disease or for cancer or for many of our processes that are complex multifactorial processes with redundant pathways. It may exist in one subset of medicine like trauma. So for instance, if I finish this recording and I step out of my office here and I get hit by a bus and my femur is sticking out of my leg, I probably won't ask you for a randomized trial of inserting my femur back into my leg and screwing it together and sewing up my leg because it was just in there and there's a clear etiology of what has happened. But that's not always the case. Similarly, the effect size. Um, you know, a parachute has a 99.9999999% improvement in short-term mortality. Is there anything in biomedicine that has that? Slide 44. People used to think that appendectomy for appendicitis was a parachute, and I was reading essays as late as 2004 that say they would never be a randomized trial of appendectomy. By 2012, there were four randomized trials of appendectomy, and they showed that there probably is a group of people in whom it can be omitted. Slide 45. And this is another seminal paper by John Ioannidis and Tiago Pereira and colleagues that looked for interventions that have very large treatment effects, i.e. interventions that had odds ratios of five or greater in terms of outcomes. And what they found was if you looked through 80,000 medical practices in all of the Cochrane database and you asked yourself how many have an odds ratio of five or better um, and how many concerned a dichotomous important endpoint like all-cause mortality, the answer to that is just one ECMO for neonates. In other words, these large treatment effects are few and far between. And probably most of what we do in biomedicine has a modest to marginal effect size. We should embrace that. We should feel good about that because this is the only epoch in history that we probably have net benefit to anything we do. And having a modest to marginal effect size is a whole lot better than having no effect size at all. And so I, I think that at the same time, we shouldn't toot our own horn and call everything we do a game changer, miracle, revolution, or cure. Um, but if you do want to toot your own horn and call things that way, then you should definitely specialize in oncology because there are a lot of people out there who do do that. Um, but we shouldn't. We should use this language appropriately, and we should recognize that most of our treatment interventions have modest to marginal effect sizes. Slide 46. This just goes to show you that it doesn't mean that parachutes don't exist. Paul Glazio and colleagues keep a list of things that they think are, you know, widely thought to have benefit. They have dramatic effect sizes. They've never been tested in a randomized trial. Um, but what I want to say is that this list is maybe a few hundred items long, and we probably do a few hundred thousand things in all of biomedicine. So it is certainly the exception and not the rule. Slide 47. And this is, you know, what I'll, what I'll kind of close with. Um, that parachutes paper, that satirical paper I showed you, has been um, widely cited. It's been cited 822 times. Um, this is what my resident Michael Hayes found in a paper that we published called Most Medical Practices Are Not Parachutes, um, for which this is the 
infographic. So that paper was cited 822 times. I had Michael Hayes read every one of those articles and ask, I asked him to read it and say, what are they citing it for? The majority of times they're citing it to say randomized trials are stupid, foolish, or unnecessary. Um, okay, but how many times do they name names and specifically say another intervention that does not need a randomized trial and we know it works? And the answer to that was 35. 35 times they named names, specific claim that a practice is like a parachute. And if you're one of these 35, Michael Hayes performed a systematic review. He found that 18 had been tested in a randomized trial. There's no surer sign that you don't have a parachute than somebody has already subjected your appraisal to a randomized trial because people don't subject things that are truly parachutes to randomized trials. 17 did not. If you were testing a randomized trial, six were positive, but five were negative and five had mixed results. And that's broadly the breakdown of all randomized trials picked at random from the literature. The positive trials where the effect size was measurable had absolute risk reductions of 30% down to 11%. And that is also not 99.99%. So in other words, nothing was like a parachute. And the other thing we found was that the endpoints of parachute practices, what did they care about? 50% was mortality or having a child, which is an important dichotomous endpoint. But the other half were some lesser endpoint, including... Um, in 5% dental outcomes. They said that you know you couldn't randomize patients to this crown or some other intervention because they could potentially lose a tooth, to which we would humbly um, reply that the loss of a tooth, though clearly important, is not as important as living or dying, and probably you could have done that trial. All right, slide 49. This is my final thought. History has taught us that over the long arc, medicine bends towards higher standards of evidence. We have bigger and more robust randomized trials in 2018 and 2019, well, no, it's 2019 now, in 2019 than we've ever had before. Um, but at the same time, we have a strong deregulatory theme uh, in the world today. Um, it is certainly lucrative to lower the standards for drug approval, which we see over and over in every seminal piece of FDA legislation since 1992. Um, and there is tremendous pressure um, and hype in this space. And and it also fits our psychology because who doesn't want more options to treat patients with? We all want that. But the reality is, is that bioplausibility doesn't get you very far in medicine. And the reason medicine is not like your television and it's not like the automobile and it's not like your cell phone is because the human body is marvelously more complex than any of those things. And our understanding of how a computer works is at a level of depth that is far, far greater than our understanding of human biology. And you can tear down a computer and build it up from scratch, and you could do no such thing with a person. And for that reason, our models are imperfect approximations of biology, and they are not yet sufficient to lead to reliable causal conclusions about the efficacy of interventions in the absence of explicit empirical trials that test that efficacy. And for that reason, we need more randomized trials, not less. Um, we need a reimagining of evidence-based medicine going forward. So thank you all for having me. Slide 50, this is my last slide. Um, the purpose of this talk was not to litigate particular practices. If there are any doctors in the audience or any cardiologists anywhere around, they often do that to me when I give this lecture, but it's not about that. I mean, you can pick and choose. I, we've, produ we've produced many, many lists and you know, 
everyone may have some problem with some of these reversals, but no one can have a problem with most of these reversals, and at least no one has, meaning that reversals do happen. This is about broad patterns of medical progress about missteps. It's about the standards of evidence we use. And so if you like this talk, you should really check out the book or you should listen to the podcast plenary session. Um, thank you all for having me. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>